I've always believed that part of creativity is just learning how to generate ideas. As many as possible, no matter how bad they might be. In the fall of 2020, I helped start a songwriting program for a nonprofit that works with Los Angeles charter schools. Normally, we would have done in-person ensembles, but due to the pandemic, we had to change what courses we offered. So I dug up a songwriting curriculum I'd written almost a decade ago and modified it for younger students and online learning. Most classes would begin with a block of time dedicated to free writing. Exercises where you write as much material as you can without stopping, usually from a prompt. But my students, who were in middle school, didn't totally grasp this idea. They weren't used to writing in a non-stop, unconscious sort of way, and they usually apologized for or disparaged their work before sharing it with the class. They seemed to think there was a right answer, and whatever they were writing was not it. After a week or so of struggling with this, I had an idea. I would begin my class with games that didn't seem to have anything to do with songwriting, but were just fun and non-judgmental. For instance, I might ask the class for a suggestion of a type of funny or unorthodox museum, like a pasta museum. Then I'd play music and have the class stand up at their computers and dance. After they'd had a little time to get down, the students had to freeze in whatever position they were in at the exact moment I stopped the music. While they were frozen, a classmate would guide me from exhibit to exhibit in this pasta museum, explaining what I was seeing when I looked at each student's pose and explaining what it had to do with pasta. The museum guide would have to make up their answers on the spot. When looking at one kid's pose of him waving his arms, the museum guide might say that the Joseph exhibit is of spaghetti being waved around in the factory so that it dries off. I might ask a follow-up question to coax the guide into expanding upon their answer as well. The point of this game was that there were no right answers. Just ones that made the class laugh because they were silly and improvised on the spot. Then, after a few rounds of a game like this, the class would try a free writing exercise. Immediately, I noticed that students seemed to be able to write more material and to not judge themselves while they were writing it. I learned this game, which has a few different names, but I learned is just museum, through my experience with improv comedy. Maybe you've been to an improv show or even taken a class. Odds are, when you think of improv, you think of the TV show Whose Line Is It Anyway, which has run in the UK and the US for nearly three decades now. Improv comes in tons of different forms. Whose Line, with its short, highly structured games, is just the most famous of them. Other shows can be montages of unrelated scenes, while others might be entire improvised musicals. I've gotten to work as a music director at multiple improv theaters around the country, performing with some of the best improvisers in the world for years now. It's been one of the highlights of my personal and professional life. But seeing my songwriting students enjoy improv like this led me to ask if there was even more to explore. How else could improv be used in the classroom, particularly in the music classroom? So I started doing some reading, talking to people, and doing some research. And while I'm biased, as are most of the people I asked, I definitely think that improvisation can be a tool used by students and teachers alike to finally open new doors to learning. 
doors we've been trying to get through for a long time. This is Think Divergent, Improv in the Classroom. I'm Jake Kassman. Improvised art is not a new concept. All throughout history, people have been improvising songs, stories, paintings, skits, whatever else you can think of. It's practiced all over the world. Though, funnily enough, it seems to be a little less common in the art of the Western world. But there are still examples of people improvising in European theater across the centuries. The ancient Greeks did it sometimes, and the Italians had the whole Commedia dell'arte scene during the Renaissance. But until quite recently, improv was mostly seen in theater circles as just a useful warm-up for putting on the actual rehearsed show. It didn't have value in and of itself. The woman who began to change that was named Viola Spolin. She was an actress who scraped by in New York for several years during the Great Depression. In 1937, she returned to her home in Chicago to take a job through the Works Progress Administration teaching creative dramatics to children at a place called Hull House. This was a settlement home for recent European immigrants and their families. Eventually, Hull House would come to be seen as one of the birthplaces for social work in America. Spolin students all had different ages, different nationalities, and different English-speaking abilities. She had to create an environment that could reach across the barriers of culture and language. So, she borrowed some of the warm-up games she knew from her theater experience and taught them to her students. Spolin described her philosophy like this. Everyone can act. Everyone can improvise. And no one teaches anyone anything. Talent or lack of talent has little to do with it. Because of her work at Hull House, Spolin came to be seen as the godmother of improv comedy. Years later, her son, Paul Sills, would found a small theater with some friends from the University of Chicago to teach and perform improv. That theater was called The Second City. And 60 years later, it has expanded to three locations with an alumni list featuring comedy legends from Gilda Radner to Tina Fey to Stephen Colbert. Viola Spolin herself taught at the Second City when it was first founded. I'm currently a music director and occasional performer at the Second City Hollywood. Most often, I play piano for improv shows, creating an underscore for an onstage cast and helping them break into spontaneous songs. I spend a lot of time with the students at the Second City, showing them how to do this as well. It's every bit as thrilling and hilarious and fun as it sounds. These days, the Second City is one of many improv theaters across the world. But no matter where you go, there are usually a handful of guidelines that almost every performer will tell you are the basic foundations for how to do it. It may seem counterintuitive, but it's helpful to have at least a few underlying principles to guide the actions of the performers as they play these games and make up scenes on the spot. Tina Fey outlined them well in her book, Bossy Pants. Number one, agree. You're trying to create something with nothing more than a one or two word suggestion from the audience, if that. That's really hard to do if, as soon as you say, man, I love this coffee shop, your scene partner says, what coffee shop? We're in the African jungle. So don't negate or neg what someone else has added to the scene. Just agree to it. It makes everybody's life a little bit easier. 
Number two, yes and. It's actually not enough to just agree with what someone has brought into a scene. You need to build on it too. If you say, man, I love this coffee shop, your partner should say something that helps establish the scene by adding some more specifics about the relationship between these two characters or what time of day or kind of weather it is or about what kind of coffee shop you're in. They could say something like, I'd like this coffee shop a lot more if you didn't give me bad news every time we met here. Or, yeah, but that barista keeps giving me the stink eye because of what happened the last time I came in. They acknowledge what you added to the scene, and then they add something else to it. Then it's your turn to yes and what they just said. For instance, telling them some bad news, or explaining what happened between your scene partner and the barista the last time you were here. Introducing these ideas of agreeing and yes-anding is often pretty explicit at first in improv classes. There's literally a game called yes-and, in which one performer makes a statement, and then their scene partner and they go back and forth, agreeing with and building off of the last statement that was made, beginning every sentence with the words yes-and. As you get better and more experienced, you don't have to be so explicit about it. But yes-and is still the bedrock for every choice you make. In addition to agree and yes and, Tina Fey lists two more core principles of improv. Number three, make statements. It's hard to improvise, but it only gets harder if you think about it too much. So just keep talking and offering up ideas, no matter how dumb or random or unrelated or nonsensical they might be. Remember, your scene partner will agree with whatever you say, and there are no right or wrong answers. So just keep making statements. And finally, number four, no mistakes, only opportunities. Again, you're going to say a lot of stuff and you may be surprised or stupefied or have any number of thoughts about whatever just came out of your mouth, but there's no time to judge what you just said. You're still improvising a scene. So don't view what you've said as a mistake because you might take yourself out of the scene and get in too deep in your own head. Instead, whatever statement you just made should create new opportunities and ideas for you to explore with your scene partner. So those are the four basic principles of improv. Agree, yes and, make statements, and no mistakes, only opportunities. But improv is a highly specific niche form of theater and art in general. How can these principles and games be applied to education and to music classes? Let's go back through these principles again and, with the help of some incredibly smart and talented people, explore how they can be used by teachers no matter what they're teaching. Can we teach creativity? It's an age-old question and a lot of people argue that you can't. On the other hand, if you're a teacher like me, at least part of you probably thinks you can teach anything, so of course the answer is yes. But the reality is, it's not that simple. While there are ways to teach creativity, we rarely come across them while we're in school. If you grew up in the U.S., you probably went to a school that gave you a product-oriented education. Meaning you were taught that there's usually a single right answer to a question or a correct method of performing a task and that your efforts would be rewarded with the right answer or a good grade at the end. That's the product. There are certain subjects for which this product-oriented learning process makes sense. 
think math problems. We use it in music theory all the time, too. Think of figured bass. But if you look at the education system as a whole, you'll start to see that the entire system is based on product-oriented processes. This is how we test everything from math to English to art. We even determine students' capability and the effectiveness of our schools using standardized testing, which is a highly quantifiable system based on correct and incorrect answers, precise grades, and rigid evaluation criteria. But a product-oriented education isn't the only way to teach. We don't have to always ask questions that have correct and incorrect answers. If we do that, then the answer itself, or the product of learning, is a lot less valuable. Instead, you could focus on the process a student took to arrive at their answer, the questions they asked, the choices they made, and the ways they worked with others to get there. This is what is called process-oriented education. It's a methodology that's not exactly encouraged by the current American education system, but it's essential to teaching creativity. Dr. Sidzel Carlson of the Norwegian Academy of Music writes that, By facilitating students' processes of learning over and above bringing forth the products of their education, and even by being attentive towards potential non-musical outcomes of music education, teachers and researchers may help to create environments in which the positive experiential and learning outcome for each student is in focus. In other words, process-oriented education allows for music educators and teachers of all subjects to focus on the experience that their students have while learning so that they can get the most out of it rather than forcefully steering them toward a correct answer. Improv comedy is a process-oriented form of performance. The scenes and characters that are created in an improv show aren't planned beforehand, and they're usually not brought back after a show either. In fact, they're kind of disposable, both because they aren't saved for later and because improvisers have to keep making statements and offering ideas to keep the scene going. By emphasizing the process rather than the product, improv encourages what's called divergent thinking. In product-oriented education, the students are taught to eliminate or narrow down as many wrong answers as possible in order to converge on the right one. But in a process-oriented practice like improv, there are no wrong answers. As Tina Fey put it, there are no mistakes, only opportunities. There are so many right choices you can make in a given moment in improv. That's Laura Hall, the music director for Whose Line Is It Anyway? Improv can be a small world, especially amongst the music directors, also known as MDs. As she notes, we music directors are using the same principles of yes and and agreement as the improvisers. There's a lot of right choices. And, and so like trusting that we can make a good choice in any given moment, even though I would make a different choice than you would. Right. You know, somehow we think there's got to be this one standardized <laughs> right choice. And if 10 MDs played the same show, they would all play it differently. That's what's so cool about it. While there may not be any wrong answers in improv, you do have to keep making choices to say something, move or talk in a specific way, or react with a strong emotion. Improvisers emphasize the importance of trusting the first idea that comes into their mind, no matter how random or crazy it might be. 
Emma Supica is one of those improvisers. She's also an educator and performer based in Nashville and founder of the nonprofit Unscripted Improv, which provides classes to marginalized communities and uses improv to heal, connect, and empower the community. There are so many things that it opens up that isn't just business as usual, because business as usual isn't growth. Those sort of like challenge moments where it's challenging for you to say yes to an idea that you just don't want to say yes to, but that's the whole point. Um, it's so easy when you don't have to, to say no. But in this, it feels like such a simple idea, but it's really, really hugely radical to have to commit to saying yes to this thing. Like, it just changes your whole way of thinking. There's, there's nothing untouched by that. Dr. Keith Sawyer is a psychologist and a professor of education at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He also happens to be a former music director in the Chicago improv scene. Much of his work has focused on creativity, and his book, Group Creativity, Music, Theater, Collaboration, is about the similarities between the dynamics and processes of improv groups and jazz combos. He says that, in both, Unconscious mental processes are valued more highly than when painting a work of art or writing a symphony. Those artworks are largely planned, at least that's the way most people see it. But in improv and jazz, performers are supposed to take inspiration from the immediate surroundings and the ideas that their onstage peers have introduced, and then introduce their own by trusting their instincts and reacting as quickly as possible. Saying it's that ability to think fast or think quickly. Right. Um, I think where that comes from is just your everyday social life experience. Uh, stage improvisation is meant to be recognizable to everybody in the audience as social settings that we could see ourselves in. So it's different from being a creative engineer where you really need years of experience engineering stuff. But getting students to think this way is harder than it looks, mostly because we've spent so much of their lives teaching them that there are lots of mistakes they can make and there is only one right answer. Katie Watson uses improv when teaching medical students at Northwestern University. She writes that... Some students never risk a wrong answer because they don't see the difference between mistakes made from poor preparation and the mistakes they make testing the limits of their stage-appropriate knowledge in front of their professors. The first type of mistake should be avoided, but the second type should be embraced as a rich educational opportunity that helps prevent mistakes in actual practice. Improv and other divergent teaching practices are ways of giving students those opportunities. Dr. Sawyer points out another difference between product and process orientation. The former is designed for problem solving, while the latter is for what he's called problem finding. If standard education is built on solving a problem and finding a correct answer, there's usually a pretty detailed plan in place to find it and all the student has to do is follow those steps, then improv, by contrast, is about exploring possibilities, which usually results in a creative problem that is found over the course of a game or scene. In Group Creativity, Dr. Sawyer writes that, quote, In most creative genres, the creative process is a constant balance between finding a problem and solving that problem, and then finding a new problem during the solving of the last one, end quote. In other words, to be creative, we need to be able to solve problems and seek out new ones or seek out new ones and then solve them before starting the process over again. But our education system is just designed to teach one half of this process, the problem-solving, product-oriented half. 
So how do we teach the process-oriented problem-finding half? Dr. Sawyer writes that research supports a domain-specific approach to teaching creativity. In other words, teaching creativity broadly and generally isn't the most effective way, but teachers of all subjects can alter the way they teach their specialties so that the knowledge students acquire doesn't just earn the right answer or a good grade, but encourages them to creatively engage with that knowledge. Sawyer recommends a style of teaching he calls guided improvisation, giving students just enough information to let them solve open-ended problems. Absolutely. I like these ideas of using improvisational activities to enhance, let's call it, I don't know, interpersonal skills or communicative abilities. So I'm seeing this in schools of business where MBA students, as part of their business training, they typically have to take some sort of class in business communication because, you know, not everybody who starts an MBA program is extroverted and (laughs) skilled at, um, negotiating or conversation or whatever. So improvisational activities can really help develop this kind of interpersonal skill uh, that it has to be improvised. And then the students that they need, they start to converge from all these different experiences on the underlying core of that creative process. So something domain general comes out of it, but as you're learning it, you have to learn it in the context of something real and something Uh, concrete, a specific domain. And that leads you to the bigger understanding of how to be creative. This domain-specific approach is essentially what I tried to do by adding improv games, similar to the ones played on Who's Line, into my songwriting class. We would begin each class with an improv game that I chose based on the lesson for the day. If we were going to be free writing or trying to generate a lot of song ideas, we'd play a game like Museum that let them practice divergent thinking. If we needed to focus and listen critically to music, I'd lead them in a game in which we had to try to count to 21 as a group without repeating a number and without being able to look at each other, forcing us to listen to each other and take turns. After we'd spent 10 minutes playing, we'd start a new activity or lesson based around the skills we were practicing in our warm-up. Julie Sheldon Huffaker and Ellen West published a paper on their use of improv to teach students in a college-level business class. They also began their classes with improv games to raise the energy and engagement levels of their students and to get them in the right frame of mind for process-oriented lessons. They observed that... To engage in improv, participants must shut off their internal critics, become intensely focused and present, and listen skillfully. Forced to provide in-the-moment responses to stimuli they can't predict, students surprise themselves by moving spontaneously from their own intuition, making subtle connections and forming patterns faster than they can think about them. This enables access to a skill set different than the cognitive, judgment-driven discrimination typically honed in the business classroom. Cognitive and judgment-driven? That actually sounds like most classrooms to me. One way to break out of that mindset and hone the creative skill set is to incorporate process-oriented, problem-finding, divergent thinking practices, like improv, into the curriculum. Dr. Carlson writes that music teachers have a responsibility to enhance students' empowerment and develop the musical skills and understandings, quote, that enable them to be active practitioners of musical practices throughout life, end quote, and become, quote, authors of their own musical lives and histories. End quote. She also writes that, 
Ultimately, what is at stake is individuals' room for action, and the extent to which we are either subdued by the larger mechanisms of society, or can freely decide our ways of being and acting within them. One of the best ways to give our students this kind of personal agency is to give our students opportunities to determine their own actions in student-centered pedagogical designs and lesson plans. One such pedagogical design would be to incorporate an ancient art form that Dr. Thomas Torino calls participatory performance. Torino, an ethnomusicologist at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, notes that most music made in the Western world takes the form of what he calls high-fidelity recording, like the Kendrick Lamar album I was listening to as I wrote this script, or presentational performance, in which there was a clear dividing line between the performers, who are assumed to have some expertise, and the audience, who are assumed to not have expertise. In participatory performances, however, there are no restrictions on who can perform, and expertise in the art form is not necessary. Think of a drum circle, for instance. There will always be performers with more experience and skill than others, but the rhythms are created by everyone in the circle, with each performer listening and responding to every other performer. This makes participatory performance more democratic and egalitarian than most art forms, because everyone has input. You may scream your approval at a rock concert, I certainly have, but it likely is not going to affect the actual performance all that much. And no matter how loud I rap along with Kendrick Lamar, that recording is still going to be the same every time I play it. Torino notes that participatory performance is a pretty remarkable and uncommon thing in the Western world, despite our regular and lofty claims of democracy and equality. Quote, The lack of goal-directed product orientation and hierarchical control in participatory performance makes these activities anomalous with modernist capitalist societies. End quote. Our product-oriented education system is the way that it is in large part because of capitalism. Our schools were originally designed to train new workers, down to the bells between classes that were supposed to simulate the change of shifts at a factory or a mine. We're teaching our students to orient themselves towards making a product, because that's what the system assumes they will be doing when they're adults. But participatory performance rejects this framework. As Torino writes, quote, Music making in the participatory field is not about making music for listening apart from the act of doing. End quote. In other words, it is process-oriented. When I first read this passage of Torino's, my figurative mental light bulb flashed. Improv is a type of participatory performance. Performers in the game or scene are making things up as they go along. There is no leader or hierarchy. The scene can include anyone, no matter their level of experience or background. And as Emma Supica explains, improv can be an incredibly revelatory experience for that reason. Improv is, by nature, when it's in the best state it can be, really decentralized and really lack of an authority. It is designed to give them just as much power as somebody else. Um, and I think that that is a starting place, at the very least. Improv not only encourages students of all abilities to participate, but it celebrates the first ideas that pop into their heads. It is an art form that allows you to trust your instincts. Like Tina Fey said, there are no mistakes, only possibilities. Improv gives students the agency to create a scene or a character out of thin air. 
And in the classroom, that agency can be fostered through further guided improvisation and lesson planning. This isn't just true of improv, by the way. It's true of improvisation in music as a whole. Doctors A.J. Hebel and Mark Laver write that improvisation deterritorializes the classroom. When a student gets to improvise a melody over a jazz standard or try a new riff on guitar to jam with their classmates, they aren't being dictated the correct way to perform or the correct notes to play. They're having input on what the ensemble is playing. Hibble and Laver write that improvising in the music classroom is a way of, quote, helping students reconnect with creative impulses from childhood that have been suppressed by years of rigid, institutionalized music education, end quote. There is a childlike joy and wonder to stumbling onto a really good solo or musical idea. I felt it many times, and I felt the same thing during improv shows. But the only way to find that joy is through taking a risk and not knowing what you're going to do before you do it. Improvisation is not something that is often taught in music classrooms. Many teachers have not been trained in it, and most of the music we teach from the Western canon doesn't really use it. But maybe the biggest reason why teachers avoid improvisation is that it's riskier. Our education system is deeply concerned about failure already, so there's a mindset that we shouldn't risk more of it. Here's Emma Supica again. It's scary as, as teachers who've been trained to keep risk low, you know, and, and, and experienced and seen it when things do get risky and dangerous and things, because things happen. And of course, you have to keep, you have to keep your students safe psychologically and physically and emotionally and all of that. But like in true safe, in like only safety, there is no growth, you know, like if it's only safe all the time, there will be, there will be no risk taking, there will be no learning. There is always some risk when you give students the power to act on their own. But when you support and affirm their efforts through the principles of agreement and yes and, the risk starts to fade and the atmosphere becomes more carefree and fun. And that agency starts to turn into creativity. Dr. Sawyer talks about how students can thrive in that carefree environment and take that feeling home with them. I think groups make you more creative even when you're alone. So you need to be in a group, you need to be interacting with people and getting ideas from that sort of exchange before you go by yourself and work on being creative and coming up with ideas. Having had that group creativity experience makes you more creative when you're alone. Even though there are no mistakes in improv, students are so used to the idea of right and wrong answers that we teachers will have to make them okay with the idea of failure as the school system and American society as a whole defines it. J.D. DeFore is a friend of mine. He's a talented improviser at the Second City Hollywood and a former high school teacher. How do you teach kids that it's okay to fail in, in the classroom? Well, I literally say it's okay to fail. Uh, I also never, I, there was never an assignment or a test or a quiz or whatever that they couldn't redo or that they couldn't take in a different manner. I would give chances for kids to retake a quiz by having a conversation with me. Uh, you know, like I would try to figure out what their way of doing it was. Like I, I made sure that everyone knew that failing was uh, a, a, just another path to growing and learning. Gotcha. And I also love to celebrate my own failures. I can't give you an example, but if I ever failed, I would point it out. 
Not all of us can be as perfect as JD. So at the end of the day, if we are going to teach kids that they have the agency to shape their world and make music, we have to create an environment in which they can take risks. Improv is a fun and harmless way to do that. It celebrates student choices and encourages them to act. Dr. Torino believes that participatory performance creates a democratic and egalitarian dynamic. He says that the ultimate goal of these performances is communitas, or the creation of a community in which anyone can participate regardless of experience, skill level, or artistic taste. To create a community like this, you need a few things. Empathy, so that members can understand each other. Trust, so that they can share their ideas and feelings with the group. And accountability, so that there is an understanding of fair treatment and responsibility in the community. When you have that empathy, trust, and accountability, you have the makings of a brave, just space for students to share their ideas and experiences with each other, no matter their background. Doctors Amy Zelensky, Lena Park, and Sarah Kramer, along with their co-authors, wrote about using improv theater to teach students of health professions how to have greater empathy for their patients. They observed that, quote, empathy and improv have many skills in common, Improv is about attunement, knowledge of self and others, affirmation, validation of self and others, and advancement, enrichment of self and others, end quote. After incorporating improv into their course curricula, they found that students who had participated in improv activities scored higher in showing care and compassion, and in helping other members of their team contribute. Improv is also known for creating trust between the performers. It requires a good deal of trust to improvise. You need to know that your scene partners are going to agree with you and support what you add into the scene, which is why the basic tenets of improv are so important. As Dr. Sawyer notes, quote, Many improv groups emphasize the importance of trust in one's fellow players. Rehearsing together allows the actors to get to know one another and to learn whether or not they can trust a certain actor to follow the yes-and rule and not to deny their offers, end quote. Laura Hall expands on this as well. Improv isn't an individual art form. It's a group art form. Mm-hmm. It's very specifically a group art form. And knowing knowing that your teammates are looking out for you and then that you're looking out for them. That's a huge, that's a huge thing to know, (laughs) you know, those ways that we can look out for each other. And in my experience, that feeling often lasts outside of that rehearsal room too, in a way. Mm -hmm. Right. I feel like part of what's been flawed about our pandemic response, for example, has been a, a lack of a sense of what's the common good, right? What am I willing to do as part of the common good? Am I willing to wear a mask, even though it makes me uncomfortable and it makes me break out, but am I willing to do that because of the common good? And being on an improv team is the, is, is the common good, right? We are, we are intentionally, very intentionally taking care of each other because we all sink or swim together. But building empathy and trust is a process. And when that trust is broken, it has to be addressed. In most classrooms, it would be by the teacher. They are supposed to be the benevolent dictator, and it's their job to be the disciplinarian. But in classrooms that implement improv theater and music improvisation, you might find that the class holds itself accountable in some surprising and exciting ways. 
Jesse Stewart is a professor of percussion and music at Carleton University in Ottawa, Canada. In an article on improvisation pedagogy and music, he describes the situation in which a male student began to solo in the middle of a female student's improvisation. Rather than point this out himself, Stewart asked the class, what just happened? The female student explained what she had been trying to do and how her male peer had stepped on her toes. The male student reflected on what had happened and genuinely apologized and focused on being more attuned to what his classmates were playing from then on. Stewart said, quote, Because of that incident, everyone seemed to take to heart the idea that the musical decisions that we make in an improvisatory context have an impact that goes well beyond the sound of the music, and we therefore need to make ethical and responsible decisions when improvising. This same dynamic plays out all the time in improv comedy, as Emma Supica describes. I think that that kind of, that kind of safety gets built over time, just like anything else in relationships. And um, in an educational setting, modeling it and really committing to it long term is what will create that environment of, of safety in multiple ways. Um, and knowing how it goes if something does come up. If something goes, goes to a space that feels shaky or it feels, yeah, it just doesn't feel as, as good. Um, and that's what's really cool is that if I've ever been in one of those situations, it's rarely the teacher, even, even in like teacher-student situations, it's rarely the teacher going like, excuse me, that was wrong. It's usually like everybody kind of, there's an energy and they're all saying like, whoa, something's, something's amiss here. Let's, let's pause and figure this out together. Uh, and that's cool. That's really, really cool. I love it when like a group just kind of takes care of themselves and you're just there in case, you know. Creating this brave and just space is particularly important and potentially more empowering for students from marginalized communities. Doctors Sawyer, Hebel, Lever, and Torino all know that improvisatory and participatory performance are much more common in non-Western cultural traditions. By implementing these techniques, teachers may be playing to the cultural strengths of their students. Viola Spolin created her improv games for communicating and building trust across linguistic and cultural boundaries. Within an egalitarian and empathetic space, marginalized students can feel safe sharing their personal truths and experiences, something they might not have gotten from the outside world or any other part of their education. As Jesse Stewart writes, quote, Improvisation, musical and otherwise, can help us negotiate our differences without minimizing or erasing those differences, but rather exploring and celebrating them, end quote. Remember my story from like 40 minutes ago about using improv to get my students to write more freely in my songwriting class? The fact is that the very act of incorporating improv into the curriculum was, itself, a form of improvisation, one that all teachers can immediately recognize. Dr. Maud Hickey puts it best when she says that for both students and educators, quote, improvisation is a disposition to be encouraged, facilitated in our classrooms. All teachers, especially those in public schools, are caught in the constant balancing act. They are employees of a school, a district, and a statewide and nationwide education system that all have standards and requirements that have to be met. 
but they can also sense that their students need to learn in a way that best suits them. J.D. DeFore describes his experience teaching this way. It's like we're taught that students learn differently, and we know this, and we know that like that rigid structure that you're talking about is not really conducive to almost everyone, and yet we still can't seem to figure out a way to do it differently. So I, as a single person, can't change the entire um, – I can't do a paradigm shift for education in this country or the world. Uh, all I can do is control what's in my classroom. So it's kind of this – this dance of I'm hitting the standards, but also hitting them in a way that makes sense for my students in my classroom. How can I reach my kids when I have a 10th grade English class with some kids who are ready to go to college and some kids who are still reading at a fifth grade level? Uh, like, so that in itself is like an improvisation. This is what Dr. Sawyer calls the teaching paradox. And he argues in his writing that all teachers have to engage with this balancing act in order for creative learning to occur. He writes that teaching itself is an improvisational activity. In group improvisational genres, such as jazz and improv theater, the group's performance is a collectively generated product that collaboratively emerges from the successive creative contributions of each performer. Conceiving of teaching as improvisation highlights the collaborative and emergent nature of effective classroom practice and shows why teaching is a creative art. The best teaching is disciplined improvisation because it always occurs within broad structures and frameworks. Here's how Emma Supica describes it. So there are very, I would say like, a category or kind of like low-hanging things, which is just that I know how to engage students in focus or uh, energy. So just straight up playing improv games. Mm -hmm. Then I have this sort of second group, which is like, I know how to use improv to teach music. I know how to use improv to teach science. Like I understand how to use, use the concepts of improv and kind of gamey, but more like um, A to C, like how that works to grasp a concept or think about problem solving. But the one that I'm most interested in and the one that I like talking about and the one that has impacted me the most is that I think that improv in the way that it, it is a, as a practice, this long, slow grow, like slow cooked method of making me a better person and teacher is just changing my way of thinking so that I am open and willing to explore with no end in sight like with no objective no benchmark it is all I love learning as process and thinking about the finding joy in the process and finding objectives in the process like the the process is the product doctors Habel and Laver are believers in dialogic teaching in which students engage in and help to steer class discussions and lesson plans Balancing student ideas and interests with what the school requires is, you guessed it, an improvisation, and it's an essential one to teaching. Habel and Laver write that, quote, learning to set the rules through interaction and not through reference to some universal musical norm is what improvisation might offer to education, and this is one way in which music education might be linked to emancipation, end quote. Here's JD again. Yeah, and that's why... Being somebody who has learned improvisation and taught it and performed it and just made it a part of my life, improvisation is not only useful for like lessons, it's useful for lesson planning, it's 
for adjusting in the classroom. Like if the lesson doesn't go the way you want it to, it's useful for teacher meetings. It's useful for uh, finding ways to make the standards work in a way that your students will understand. Okay, cards on the table time. First, there is not much quantitative research to back up these conclusions. There's not really that much research on improv in the classroom or improv at all. There are lots of papers written by teachers in medicine and business who already love improv and they explore incorporating it into their fields of expertise in their articles. But they're a little biased. So were my guests. And so am I. Secondly, as much as I think improv can be used to create a brave and just space for equity and inclusion, historically it has been an overwhelmingly white and male environment. Much of the time, toxically so. Shortly after the protests over George Floyd's death began last year, Andrew Alexander, the CEO of Second City, resigned after current and former performers began sharing stories about systemic obstacles for people of color. In the letter of resignation, Alexander wrote that, quote, it is not enough to not be a racist. You must be anti-racist. The Second City cannot begin to call itself anti-racist. That is one of the great failures of my life. End quote. But if teachers and students are comfortable, improv can be a great tool to have in the educational shed. It teaches aspects of creativity that are not usually explored. It gives students the opportunity to safely make choices and take risks, and it fosters empathy and community. Plus, for us teachers, it's kind of a survival skill. Doctors Habel and Laver write that, If improvisation does chafe within secondary or tertiary music curricula, it is well positioned to serve as an agitator to fruitfully discomfort the more comfortably, uncritically ensconced elements of those curricula, to destabilize old, unquestioned methods, and to instill in students a vital capacity for critical thought, for creative agency, for empathy, and for justice. So there may be some chafing and pushback to using a powerful tool like this in a new way, and we may not know how we're going to respond to that. But, you know... We can always make it up when we get there. I had to turn my mic back on to record this last clip. The interview was supposed to be over. But when you feel a little inspiration in the moment, you've got to yes and your scene partner. I'll let Emma Supica have the last word. It takes nothing uh, and is so full of, of rich possibilities that we would be totally turning our back on something that has that is so powerful if we don't use this uh, like we we must research it we must know more about this we must be able to use this because it would it costs us nothing to to use and it can do it can do so much we don't even know what it will do in a space like when we bring improv into a space that's why i don't outline specific objectives because i don't know what it will bring up and i don't want to limit the outcomes and that is remarkable. And that's why you need somebody who knows what they're doing to sort of guide because anything can come up and anything can be processed. And if that isn't like very rich learning, then I don't know what is. This podcast was written, produced, and narrated by Jake Kassman. 
Quotations read by Emma Lieberman. Our editor is Jake Kassman. Our researcher is Jake Kassman. And our booker is Jake Kassman. Music by Drunken Logic and Jake Kassman. Special thanks to Dr. Keith Sawyer, Dr. Beatrice Olari, Laura Hall, J.D. DeFore, Emma Supica, Chris Kolach, and Emma Lieberman for all their help. And thank you for listening.